0: In uh, one of the plays from Drama Camp, there's a teacher up in front of her class, putting notes up on the whiteboard, and uh, like a moment out of High School Musical, as she's taking her notes, the class all turns around and starts singing, blah 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 blah. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, now we've just given our kids a song in their head every time I stand up to preach. Blah <coughs> <coughs> blah 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 blah. Bla. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Amanda, thank you, friends like you. Jack Dorsey, food and he uh, drinks his herbal tea and he's a very thoughtful, he's a very humble person and there was an interview he did last month that I caught in which they asked him a wide range of questions and as you might expect, at least one of those questions had to do, what did he think about the advance of technology into public life in the ways that it has? And, you know, he's not the first tech overlord ever to admit a certain ambivalence about the ways in which those advances have maybe been appropriated in ways that makes us go, hmm, I wonder if this was a good idea. So I just want to show you um, a brief excerpt from that interview, and I want you to hear not only his words, but I also want you to hear a reference to a film that he's going to make that he thinks encapsulates the issue or or the situation that we find ourselves in. And I thought it was so remarkable that I actually am including his words and references to the very film that he is going to uh, appeal to. A contrast of two ways of seeing the world.
1: Jack, what do you make of uh, Meta's you know, foray into the headsets? We just had the release of the Apple headset, this type of technological advancement. Uh, what do you think about AR, VR, and the current push by these companies into it? Um,
0: I think it's an obvious uh, user interface evolution, I'm super worried and concerned with, uh, um, how out of touch it might make people and how it distances us even further. Mm. I think it, it, another movie, uh, WALL-E by, by Pixar, that's the future we're driving towards, um, with everyone in the floating chairs, you know, drinking their food out of straws and, and, uh, you know, constant 24 seven entertainment and you can see that like the whole world is headed this way and i i, I, I want to believe that there's a different answer
1: is very
2: important to us mm-hmm. time for lunch
1: in a cup <gasps> <gasps> feel beautiful it's the new i right? i know honey yeah,
0: men attention axiom Shockers. try blue It's the new red. what jack dorsey is saying and i think why he appeals to that movie from 2008 is that the more attached we become to our technology the more detached we come become from other things detached from the fullness of what is from from the fullness of who each other is from the fullness of being able to face life as it comes to us and what you see documented in just that that little mashup of two scenes of everyone sort of life mediated life delivered life constrained that's that's one way and then there's Wally who Andrew Stanton was the director of that film, and when he won the Academy Award for it, he said, you know what that story's about? That's the story about someone who can see the beauty in everything. Unmediated. Unconstrained. Two versions of how to live. Two versions of what it means to be connected to our world. We have been in a series for several weeks now asking ourselves, what does it really mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? Like, that's not a small question. And what you say about that and what you think about that says a lot about how you understand the Lord. It says, but I do. And it might be tempting, even in thinking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's, that's the name to which he is given, that the Holy Spirit is all about your moral life that the Holy Spirit is the moral police. No, no. Look, we will talk further in, in the weeks to come about how the Holy Spirit is indeed interested in our moral life, but I want to suggest to you today that there's actually a broader, deeper set of concerns that the Holy Spirit has for those in whom he dwells. And it has a lot to do with the contrast in what you saw right here. You know what you saw two versions of? What does it mean to be happy? And what does it mean to have hope? And hope is the ability to face what comes your way and to persevere. Well, I think those two versions set us up nicely for what I believe is what the Holy Spirit is out to entertain for us today. He has a great deal of concern for what what it means for us to be happy. You might be surprised to hear that but he also has a great deal about what does it mean to live in hope we want to consider the spirit's role in our happiness and in our hope and we're going to listen a little bit more to what paul has to say about the holy spirit in romans 8 we're going to focus on the back half of the text but we're going to get a running start by where we started last week so i wonder if you might stand we're in romans chapter 8 again Romans 8, starting in verse 1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. First thing you might notice, it's not hard to miss is that starting there in verse 5, Paul is setting up a contrast. So, hear it again. Here's the contrast. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Once again, every sentence is thick. Thick as molasses. What does he mean there by living according to the flesh, a mind set on the flesh? Elsewhere, when Paul uses the word flesh, it just refers to our bodily life bodily. I'm flesh, I'm bone, I'm blood, I'm marrow, just like you. That's our bodily life. The Lord is spirit. He's real. He's God. He's divine. And in that way, he is a distinct from who I am. I am, he is spirit. I am flesh. That's one way to understand flesh. That's not how Paul means it here, though. In speaking of a life lived according to the flesh, flesh here is references more something like weakness, our frailty, our capacity for decay, our... What we are is that we won't last. And the mind set on the flesh is sort of like what the inhabitants there on the ship in Wally are embodying. And attention to everything that will not last such that their frame of view is obscured, if not blinded, to a much larger reality that's out there. Oh, I didn't know we had a pool. And then here's Wally, who is out there on the ship, and he's, he's discovering the beauty in everything. He's seeing the sun. He's, he's seeing the, the stars all around him, and his eyes are wide. Those sympathetic, beautiful eyes that are seeing things as they are which is a stark contrast to everybody else on that ship. The mindset on the flesh is a, is a, is a, is a mindset that is so fixated on <clears throat> everything that's just not going to persevere. And in their world, uh, their life was, was focused on comfort, on the acceptance that comes through conformity. Oh, look, blue. Oh, look, I'm fine now because now we're all alike focus on their big gulps, focus entirely on their selves. That's a mindset on the flesh. And you might be surprised to know that long before Wally, there was a guy named Martin Luther who had a, an argument for what that is an example of. Martin Luther argued that there is a, our core problem is not that just we, we like naughty things or we like things that don't work or we're foolish. It's that we are a life that is curved in on itself. He's borrowing a line from Augustine. It's, it's totally curved in on itself. It's only there in that interest. And so he'll say, our nature by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. You receive what he gives you, but you use them for your own purposes, quite opposed to him, maybe even as a substitute for him. You ever had an ingrown toenail, right? It's, <clears throat> it's curved, goes in the wrong place, it stinks, it's grotesque, and it's not, it's not serving its purpose, you know, which is a snack when you need it. No. Um, now they're awake. <clears throat> a toenail curved in on itself automatically gives us the ugh, but a life curved in on itself ought to also, but it doesn't. We're blind to it. We're obscured by it. And that is the world that we find ourselves in. Life lived for itself is a world that is stuck in the flesh. It is a world in which now everything is about me. But a life lived according to the Spirit is Awakened to something more beautiful. Awakened to a belief that there is grace for you. That there is a kindness and a mercy that is available to us. That if we just lifted up our eyes to see, we might be as awakened and enamored with it as Wally is to all things that are beautiful. Look, the life lived according to the flesh in that world... It's all about you, and it's usually to somebody else's profit. But let's pause for a minute with the Wally analogy, because it helps, and it helps create that contrast between a life lived according to the flesh and a life that is awakened to something much larger and more beautiful in who Jesus is to us. Let's let's say that, let's let's keep that in mind, but let's pause for a minute and say that the analogy is this. We, we look upon those people that drive around in their scooters with their big gulps and are sort of, you know, totally oblivious to much larger truths and much larger realities, and we have a certain kind of pity, like, oh, those poor people, they're consumed by their consumption, right? <clears throat> it's not like Paul isn't having some sort of sympathy for that life that's lived according to the flesh, but he would actually like to speak more straight up with those of us that might be tempted in that direction. That life, according to the flesh, is not just something to be pitied. It's, that's a life that is in opposition to what God has. Uh, they're not just unaware of things. They're, they're opposed to it. And so you hear in verse 7, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The life lived according to the flesh is more than just being distracted from larger truths. It is being ferociously hostile to the call to see that larger truth or to submit to it. Uh, there's a movie about <clears throat> 25 years ago. won two Academy Awards. Uh, it's about a young man trying to find his place in the world and he ends up being mentored by a doctor who runs an orphanage and that movie was called The Cider House Rules. It's a very tragic and delicate story if you know that story. But along the way it, it takes place alongside an orchard of apple trees. And oftentimes they cut away to these um, men and women that, that work those orchards and then live in this cider house. And someone has tacked up a set of rules in that cider house, thus the name of the movie, about what to do and what not to do if you're going to work on this orchard. And there comes a moment in the film that ends up really being the theme of the film. And that theme is spoken of by one of the work hands in the Cider House. And let me just let you let it play out. Listen.
1: Who live in this cider house? Who grind up those apples? The person that cider, cleaning up
0: all this mess. Who just plain live here just... Breathing in that vinegar. Well, someone who don't live here made those rules. These rules ain't for us. we the ones supposed to make our own rules. And we do. Every single day.
1: That right, Homer.
2: That's right.
1: Well, why don't you burn them rules in the stove? Go ahead, Homer, do it.
0: that moment is there to capsulize the film and it's not really about the rules of the cider house. It's about rules that appeal to life and death that the author is trying to say to us have been given to us, but by somebody who doesn't really know us or understand this world. And therefore those rules can't simply apply to us. That's hostility. That's a belief that they have nothing for us. Those rules are too constraining. They bind us too much. That's a picture of what verse 7 is talking about. It's one thing to be distracted or unaware of a larger world that God would out to be revealed to us. It's another thing to want to spit in the face of those rules. To spit in the face of his commands as if they are oppressive. That's art. Uh, But that art plays itself out in life. There's a, a university in Texas uh, that shall remain nameless, because I wouldn't want to embarrass Karen Whiting, um, <laughs> where <coughs> there's a, there was a reading assignment given by an English professor, and uh, from that reading assignment, an essay would be written. And the reading assignment happened to be from the New Testament. It happened to be from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Everybody had to read the Sermon on the Mount, and then they had to give a responsive Um, essay to that and uh, so she starts to get the the essays back and you know um, with all due respect to the 20 somethings in the world and in our room there's a a sense in which you read old ancient ideas and maybe your first response is to go they're just old and ancient and they no longer apply there's no wisdom there and so she began to grade some of those papers and and some of that kind of was coming out there but then she realized no it was actually broader than that and, and so um, along the way, um, and I'm, I'm going to quote several of the actual responses from the essays that she received. Um, we don't have their pictures, so we put up the next best thing. To <laughs> <coughs> What? This is important. Don't laugh. Um, one, part, one student said, The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. And another student writes, I didn't like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. No one is. And then uh, thirdly, uh, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Okay, I'm not dissing on college students. I once wasn't, was, not right? But what you hear in that is not, you know, gosh, what, what an interesting set of ideas I don't know that I agree with them, but they don't really, I don't see how they fit in today's life. No, this was a stupid, so stupid, right? Um, <laughs> hostility. Uh, that is the world that looks down on anything that has come this way. And it's not just a an, an lack of awareness of that. It's actually a hostility to what we find what is the holy spirit and a life living according to the spirit is like it is it is awakening us awakening us to the possibility that there might be at the bottom of all things grace and then softening our hearts to believe that god has a right to have a claim on us through his son that is a life lived according to the spirit and that belief that recognition, that new outlook, leads to a different priority. It's not a priority in which, um, where, where pleasure is off the table, far from it. Instead, it's a priority in which God's pleasure becomes foremost. It is at the center of your interest, rather than some marginal thing in which you barely even think of it. It is a desire for God's pleasure in all things, such that what Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's your anchor. That's your center. That's your place. That's your priority. That is a life living according to the Spirit. Now, you hear that, and and maybe your first thought is, do we all need to move to a monastery then? St. Augustine said that yours and my problem is not that we have desires. There is no human without desires. Our problem is that our desires get disordered. They get distorted. Or to borrow another metaphor, we, we place weight on some things that are more than what they're worth, and we don't place enough weight on some things that are actually more worthy than the things we give too much attention to. Those are disordered desires, and we mistake first things for secondary things. And the reason I use that word, first and secondary, is because I'm going to borrow a line from C.S. Lewis. You've heard this before. It's probably worth hearing again about understanding the difference. He, he says this, The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But, Clear the decks and arrange your life that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her. And what happens? He doesn't even finish the sentence because he knows. That's the examples he gives of first things and second things getting mistaken. And so here's the principle that he's trying to um, uh, lift for us. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good, involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. So far you're going, what does this have to do with our happiness? Everything. Happiness comes through all sorts of things but if you place all of your happiness all of your weight on your accomplishments on your relationships on how you're received on what you do on the resume that you have you have made second things first things and what he's arguing is that when you do that you are sacrificing your ability actually to find pleasure in those good things because you have demanded too much of them if you make a spouse Your only reason for living, you have placed too much weight on them that they can bear. That's true of spouses, it's true of friends, it's true of careers, it's true of whatever your aspirations might be. The Spirit is interested in your happiness by ensuring that the pleasure of God is the thing that is of first importance and everything else becomes of secondary importance. That's why at the top of this worship service, excuse me, we showed the clip from Chariots of Fire. Both runners, both fast, both gifted. But Abrams used the gift for what purpose? To see if he could justify his existence. He's running after something he may never even catch. Little? I'm just running because I take pleasure in the fact that the Lord is pleased with me and Jesus. It's a different way, it's a different version of happiness the Holy Spirit is involved and concerned with your happiness for those reasons in that way. But he is also interested in your hope. Paul doesn't need help to make his point, but I (coughs) want to let two voices kind of set up what he has to say about hope. Um, One that is new, one that is an invocation of a voice we heard last week. The first one is a, a guy named Stephen Meyer. He's a geophysicist, he's a PhD in philosophy of science, and he has a pretty controversial belief about the development of life. Uh, he's a believer. And uh, though his, his uh, perspective on things is controversial, it was interesting enough for Joe Rogan to invite him on his podcast last week. And I'm going to show you just a, you know, actually the first three minutes of that podcast in which uh, Joe Rogan just pretty much goes for the jugular, about what's really motivating this belief, this perspective on life's origins and things like that. L- just listen to this. this an idea that you... Did you have a pre... Did you have a notion in your mind already that you were trying to prove? Or was this something that you sort of started to believe upon the preponderance of evidence?
2: It was more the latter, but I had a... By the time I first encountered it, a philosophical framework that made me open to it. Um, I had a long protracted uh, religious conversion from late high school all the way through college. It took it was the the last thing from a Damascus Road experience. And uh, how did it happen? It was a, a process of philosophical deliberation. It was not really based on science initially. I started having weird existential questions when I was 14 years old after I'd broken my leg in a skiing accident and mm. stu- questions like well what's it gonna matter in a hundred years uh, I I was there's this great quote from Bertrand Russell where he says you know that all the the noonday genius of human achievement is destined for extinction in the vast Heat death of the solar system. Whoa. I had never encountered Bertrand Russell as a fourteen-year-old, but I later encountered <laughs> that quote, and I thought that was what was bothering me. You know, that I,
1: dude was a scorcher. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I, you know, I read in the hospital after I had this accident. I was reading a, a book about the history of baseball, and I was totally into baseball at the time. I couldn't think of a, a, a better, a higher form of human achievement than to play for the New York Yankees, mm. and yet all the stories of the great baseball guys ended the same. You know, they they were recruited by uh, scouts who saw their talent. They came up to the big leagues. They uh, amassed records. They won a certain number of World Series. And then, you know, if they were really great, uh, they go to the Hall of Fame and retire at 38. And then what? And then I got to thinking, well, but then what for any of us? You know, and and so I was I was this this question of of uh, of meaning kind of haunted me. What what? What could I possibly do that would have any lasting or enduring meaning? And
0: the sun will die. It will supernova and turn into a white dwarf. Your, your baseball career can end at any given moment, maybe even end up to age 42. And he's having this moment where he's realizing, boy, I can fill my life with all manner of accomplishments, but w- and... If there's nothing more than that, if my sense of meaning is just sort of my own creation that dies with me and there is nothing else, then like, really what's the point? Now that, that longing for a sense of meaning, that proves nothing about God. But doesn't it make the question of God interesting at least? He's having a recognition... That with everything changing and nothing lasting, then where does meaning come from? What gives you a right or a resolve to persevere when things get hard, when you break your leg, when you lose everything, when they stop calling and they don't tell you why, or when they move out, or when this one dies, or when you get this diagnosis? Where does the meaning come from? And in that sense, meaning and hope are pretty much overlapping ideas. Where does the hope come from? What are you to do? The most prominent theme on the back half of the passage is Paul saying this. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, if he who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Four times, four or five times, you're going to hear that idea, dwells in you. In which case, what is Paul out to say? To receive God is not to receive an idea. It's not to receive a program for life or an ethical framework. It's not even, to re- it's not even wholly to receive a promise for future fulfillment. It is to receive a presence It is to have his presence. The the Spirit becomes an agent, an influence. And as we've talked about in previous moments, he's a source of comfort and of counsel and of an advocacy and of one who reminds us and guides us into what is good and convicts us of sin and encourages us of grace. What the Holy Spirit as a presence means is this. When the sun burns out or everything falls apart or the affliction grips you and will not change, it is the Lord saying to you this, I'm your meaning. You might find delight and enjoyment and satisfaction in any number of things. Revel in it. Give thanks in it. Savor the moment. But I'm your meaning. All those other things are so frail, so fragile. I am not. I am your meaning. I am your hope. Meaning, hope. What's the opposite? Despair. The the inability to want to persevere through any issue, any anything that's adversarial against you, any struggle, anything like that. That's it. It is the ability to have resolve against things that you cannot change. And boy, that list grows longer by the year. And according to Paul, there's at least one thing that cannot change. It probably should be at the top of your list And what he says in verse 10. "If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body of sin, the body is dead because of sin. What does that mean? Look, the one thing that you cannot change is this: When you were born, a watch started. You are born toward dying. Uh, No one gets out of here alive was the autobiography of uh, Jim Morrison, right? From so to speak. That's the direction. Every passing year, uh, you start to feel. um, With every passing year, you become a little less operative than you were before. It's in that direction. That's the trajectory and it's unavoidable. And in a moment like that, you feel like, well, what's the point? The Spirit is the one who says, there is life. That even in that trajectory toward decay and toward death, the Spirit is the one who says, life is beautiful, life is wondrous, because of the righteousness of God. God is righteous, God prevails His righteousness is worth living for. That's the Spirit's presence in you to say, this is worth it. Yes, your body is decaying, but the Spirit who dwells in you, yeah, life is worth it too. The Spirit offers hope in that trajectory toward death, but secondly, the Spirit offers hope in death itself. And last week we introduced you to a French author named Michel Houellebecq and he mentioned his own respect for the Apostle Paul even though he himself is not a believer. I want to show you one other excerpt from that same interview in which he becomes very candid about his thoughts about death.
1: Uh, Je commence à être vieux, donc je suis allé à pas mal d'enterrements déjà. Et le fait est que la religion reste la seule chose qui peut produire un discours qui est qui a une signification, quoi, qui a un impact dans ce genre de circonstances. Donc la circonstance, c'est la mort d'autrui. Quoi. Ouais, ça sert quand même essentiellement à nier la mort d'autrui, euh, qui, est, hein, qui est quelque chose d'assez inacceptable. Euh, Sa propre mort, moins. Je dirais que le, le raisonnement d'épicure célèbre, euh, il n'y a pas à craindre la mort, puisque quand nous sommes la mort n'est pas, et quand la mort est, nous ne sommes pas, marche sur moi. me pèse instantanément et c'est un raisonnement de nature non religieuse. Par contre, ça ne marche pas pour la mort d'autrui. Non. Bon, si vous voulez, mais je, j'ai pas du tout de. je suis pas né dans un monde euh, d'une famille religieuse, quoi. Euh, j'ai pas ça en moi. Donc, oui, c'est. Et de fait, d'ailleurs, les, les gens de ma famille qui n'étaient pas religieux, donc du tout, s'en sortaient très mal avec la mort d'autrui, quoi. Ils, en fait, ils n'arrivaient pas à supporter de la chose. C'est parce que elle n'est pas supportable, en fait.
0: Il ne pas où il peut dire Je crois en Dieu. But I can sure have respect for those that do embrace that because when it comes to facing death, there is something available which doesn't prove the truth of it, but once again makes the question of God interesting. Does belief in the Lord make you immune to grief? You know that's not true. But the Spirit offers hope in this, where Paul lands this in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if the Spirit has already showed himself capable of raising Jesus from the dead, at some unspecified time known only to the Lord, he is capable of doing the same for anybody in whom the Spirit dwells. This is what we call resurrection hope. And I can't manufacture that in myself I can't produce it in myself. It is a gift. And it is a gift of the presence of the Spirit that I will need assistance. The Spirit is the one who is here to say, you can't do this alone. I'm going to have to help you. That's good. That's resurrection hope. That's the gospel. What do we do with all that? All of this, the whole morning, was just preparing us that we come to this table. And there's a reason we come to this table with empty hands. And there's a reason we come to this table as often as we can. Because of something St. Augustine said about happy people. Our hearts and our thoughts are not in our power. Everyone who is humble and genuinely religious recognizes that this is entirely true. Who is so happy as one who always ascends in his heart? But without divine assistance, who can make it happen? That's why we're coming to the table. That's why I need the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. Because my ability to be happy as he intends or to live with the hope that he promises... I will need his spirit to refresh me in that. So as you come to this table, I ask any number of questions that might be applicable. What secondary thing have you made primary of late? I invite you to confess that. What has been a source of hope that has become a substitute for the hope that we have in him? I invite you to confess that or to reflect upon it. How has the fear of death, the closer it approaches your life this day, kept you in some maybe lurking undercurrent of fear? We get it. So does He. It's why we're having this table and why we're coming to it. The Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit is interested in your moral life, to be sure. But He's also interested in your happiness and your hope. And we come to this table to have that sense refreshed. So let's pray for that end. Father, we, how many times have we come to this table and still wonder, what are we doing and what is this for and what experience should we hope for? And Father, we just come with empty hands. And we're, we're coming as often as we can just because you said we should and so we are. But we ask that you would help us to see what secondary things we've made primary what things we thought would be a substitute for you that are not and how we might believe in a grace that is sufficient for you and what your son has done for us help us to eat and drink worthily not as sinless people we are not there are none but as those who rest in your grace to live for your goodness What does that look like for us this week, sir? Would you show us as we come to the table in Jesus' name?